what if the goat man is watching you right now mm-hmm. and it's holding its rusted steely axe ready to have you for a snack holding its bottle of maple syrup If you've ever been to summer camp, yours was probably just like mine. It was a bit of a drive, somewhere outside the city. In the wilderness. Cabins by a lake. A dining hall where meals were served. Trees and trails. There were bunks. A dock. You played games like capture the flag. Kids, counselors, everybody wearing shorts. And at the end of the day, there was a campfire. Songs, stories, and if your camp was anything like mine, it had a monster, a ghost, a slasher. In this episode of Intangible Alberta, I'd like to take you to my camp, Hills of Peace. I'd also like to introduce you to the campground's main macabre attraction, Goatman. Welcome to Intangible Alberta. Before we get into it, we thought we should mention that this episode contains some graphic and violent descriptions and may not be appropriate for younger listeners. The Hills of Peace campground in Alberta lies near the Saskatchewan border, not far from the town of Provost. Spread across a piece of Aspen parkland, its small murky lake is surrounded by sprawling woods and shrubby plains. Scattered throughout these woods are a number of simple cabins. A trail from the lake leads up a sandy hillside, at the top of which are two white chapels. The campground sits surrounded by farms and ranch lands. I grew up at Hills of Peace. Our family would go every summer. In my memories, there is no first time I went to the campground. It was just a given summer setting, like blue sky over green grass. During the day, all was sunshine and warm breezes, Hills of Peace felt like the safest place in the world, protected from the harsh realities beyond the gate. Then the sun went down. The fields that had hosted the day's fun and games were abandoned. The craft shack was locked up. The flames of the campfire had burned themselves beyond embers to black, charred nothingness. All the families had tucked themselves into bed in their cabins and dorms. The dining hall sat empty, a lone fluorescent light buzzing nervously in the kitchen. The lake went to sleep, becoming disquietingly still and unresponsive. Lights out. As nice as Hills of Peace felt during the day, it became equally sinister after hours, with potential horrors lurking in every thicket, behind every cabin, down every poorly lit lane or trail. That's when he prowled. Um, This is Matt Levitt. I am here with my Auntie Angie, and we are at Hills of Peace Campground. Um, Actually, Aunt Angie, why don't you tell us where we are right now? Okay, uh, we're sitting here in the Hills of Peace Campground at the campfire site where we usually have our campfire, where we sing our songs and watch the wildlife go by and tell skits which I love to do. And uh, I am, we're gonna be talking about uh, urban legends. I wanted to talk to someone who'd grown up with the story like I did, 
but from the generation before me, trying to go back further in time to when the story might have first been told at Hills of Peace. Two summers ago, I went back to Hills of Peace and started asking around. Turns out my Aunt Angie was just the person. So we're in the campfire area, but there's a clearing in the trees right in front of us. And then we have the lake stretching out in front of us with some ducks kind of swimming around. So this is a perfect kind of setting. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'll, Aunt Angie, um, why don't you tell me the goat man story? Uh, okay. I will tell the goat man story in my own particular idiom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so it, the goat man story starts off with a lone lumberjack in the middle of a forest and he's chopping down trees. And as he's working on this very large, old, ancient tree, he's hacking away, chopping, chopping, chopping until it starts to give way. He decides to back away from the tree to find some safety when a huge gust of wind pushes the tree into his direction and falls directly upon his limbs. He can't move his legs as this large tree pins him to the earth. He struggles to break free, but no hope in sight. He calls out to his fellow lumberjacks in the area, but no one hears him. And so he, he lies there day after day after day. And as he's starting to get extremely hungry and thirsty, he realizes he may die in this predicament. And looking at his axe and looking at his legs, he de- decides to do the inevitable, to free himself. He reaches forth for the axe, raises it high, closes his eyes, and then the axe falls. Chopping both of his legs off, he drags himself free from his severed limbs. Thinking that he could manage to get back to camp, he slowly starts to drag himself using the axe to pull him across the forest floor. He continues to cry out, but to no avail. Nobody hears him as if nobody cares for him. He's alone, he's scared, and he's hungry. He finally makes it to a clearing where he sees this lone goat eating the grass, just enjoying the afternoon sun. He's looking at this goat and he says, oh, that would satisfy my hunger at this point. So he takes his axe and he pulls his arm back and is mustering as much strength as he can. He throws the axe and it makes its mark and it kills the goat. He quickly crawls over there and starts consuming the flesh of this animal, eating at the goat and starting to regain some of his strength. But he realizes he's still in the same predicament. He's still too far away and he needs a better way of transportation. He looks at the legs of the goat and again, thinking to himself, if I strap those legs upon mine, I may be able to walk out of here. So he takes his mighty axe once again and starts chopping away at the goat legs. Then he places the goat legs upon his knees and he takes some twine from his backpack and wires these goat legs 
into his bones, into his flesh, with excruciating pain that he's feeling, it drives him crazy. Madness starts to set in through the pain as he lies there, as the bones of his flesh and the flesh of the goat mingle together and become one. Night falls as he lies there. He starts to feel this unsatiable hunger as if the animalistic tendencies of the goat is starting to take over his psyche. He pulls himself up using the axe as a cane. He manages to stand up on both of his now two new legs. And he starts to hobble at first and then gallop and trot like a goat. And he finally makes it cross the path of the clearing through the forest and into the campsite, where at this point now he is thirsty, not just for water or for bread, but for flesh. Goatman was, is, a big story at Hills of Peace. When I was a young camper in the early 90s, a group of us were taken by our counselors to the dining hall trailer where the foodstuffs were kept. One of the deep freezes was open to us, revealing a severed goat leg inside. It was fairly obvious that the leg bone was a white stick, the muscle was fiberglass wrapped in saran wrap, and the blood was ketchup. I remember this being the most disturbing feature, not because it appeared to be real blood, but because for some reason I was grossed out by the idea of ketchup being smeared all over the fiberglass. I don't remember any of us being particularly scared or impressed with the spectacle, but the oddness of its inception was not lost on me even then. Another time, it could have been the same night, but I can't really remember, a group of us were taken up to the old little chapel that sat just at the edge of the woods. Once nestled inside, we were told some scary stories. Near the close of the session, we began to hear strange noises outside the chapel walls. Lurking noises. Stalking noises. Noises of intended intimidation. These escalated into moans and roars. Yes, I was scared and even jammed myself beneath one of the pews, but I also knew almost immediately upon hearing the vocalizations that they were being made by my Aunt Patty. That's a different aunt than my aunt before and that she must be creeping outside in the dark. I don't believe anyone said this outright, but we were all thinking, it's Goatman. Or rather, she's pretending to be Goatman. Although I knew I was not in any real danger. The danger was perhaps more abstract. It was the eeriness of commemorating such a narrative that disturbed me. The fact that grown-ups were intending to scare us and were invoking the strange Goatman to do so. Was Goatman so real, or at least the idea of Goatman so real, that even adults were talking about him, thinking about him, acting like him? Could a story be so prolific, so embedded within the DNA of a place? When did you first encounter Goatman? It was my brother that introduced the story to me. Of course, he had put his own flair on, on the vis visualizations of it. I, I was probably seven or eight at the camp. So around what year would that have been? Yeah, 1975, I guess. 75, okay. Yeah. And we were all gathered together. Um, it was rest period. And 
we all decide to tell ghost stories. My mom was sleeping. Uh, we were all sitting on the bottom bunk, and I was sitting there, most likely going through my candy from the from the canteen, which is the candy shack here at the campsite, and just anticipating the coming swim time. And then my brother, he he started retelling the story of the goat man. Now his rendition was very basic, with with the same metaphors and and the scenery of of a lumberjack in the forest cutting trees, and then a tree would fall on him and. Days would go by, he would free himself and then crawl across the, the, the floor of the, of the forest until he found a goat in, I believe his story, the goat was in, in a trap and instead of freeing it, he killed it, consumed it and then attached the, the legs. And then his version of the story, the goat man didn't go back to the uh, work camp. It, it started uh, tracking down other campers because he made the setting within the church camp area just to make it that much more closer. And so the rumor was that if you were walking through the darkened pathways of, of the Hills of Peace at night, and, and before we had a lot of the, the main lights down the pathways, it was very dark and you needed a flashlight. And so any rustle in the in the trees or the grass, it would set you off. Mm. And it was very scary, especially for an eight-year-old walking through those pathways and at night going to these dark cabins. And so you were always paranoid <laughs> about <laughs> something jumping out at you. And of course, my brother would be ready to jump out at me after telling that story that, that day. Yeah. <laughs> and he did a sufficient job of it. So, yeah, that story stuck with me ever since. Like, this place has always been very special to me. Uh, I always felt very safe and secure, except when night falls. For some reason, it, it takes on a different characteristic of all the deep shadows. You hear the owls hooting, um, the animals rustling through the, uh, through the bushes. And so when you're young, especially when you're by yourself and at that age, and you have to go to an outhouse, in the middle of the night, your imagination starts running with you and you do get a different impression of this so-called holy place. Mm -hmm. It becomes an un unholy terror. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting that you were talking about hearing the story during the day. Um, and, you know, we're telling it during the day right now. Mm -hmm. and, and honestly, when I remember hearing it as a young kid, I also remember hearing it during the day. Yeah. It's almost like a it's it's a story that's told not around the campfire. I mean, we don't generally speaking, we wouldn't tell those kinds of stories no, around, the not campfire. around the campfire. It's it's a story that is told during the day, uh, those off periods where nothing mm -hmm. else is going on, and and kids are allowed to gather and and sort of you know whisper this story to mm -hmm. each other. Yeah. Um. And so you hear it during the day, and it's all sort of intriguing. And then at night, like you said that's when it sets in. Yeah, <laughs> so you're not, yeah. <laughs> you're not hearing it at night. You're thinking about it you're, at night. Yeah, you're thinking it. Well, it, it gives the story a chance to uh, cultivate within mm. your soul and in, within your imagination. So you're, you're, you yourself as a person, you hear the story, you're bringing it in, but your mind is chewing on it mm. and chewing on it until the sun goes down 
And for some reason, you could be doing something totally offset, not even thinking about the goat man. Mm -hmm. But then, as soon as, let's say, if you're having your, your evening snack and you played some games with your friends and they all go off to bed mm -hmm. and you realize that your cabin is in the opposite direction of theirs and you have to go down the dark path, not the safe path, which is up by the chapel where all the lights are. No, you have to go through the dark path, which is, you know, it's closer to, you know, to some amenities. But unfortunately for you, it's the dark path. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and so, and that's when your mind and your imagination starts reminding you, it says, hey, remember that story that you were told this afternoon? Remember the goat man that's hiding in these bushes right. in this area? Mm. What if? The goat man is watching you right now mm -hmm. and it's holding its rusted steely axe ready to have you for a snack, holding its bottle of maple syrup. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever tell the story to other people? I have told the story and retold the story to, uh, like when I got older and I was come to the camp as a youth counselor. Um, I would retell the story to my, um, to the other kids mm -hmm. as a responsible adult that I was <laughs> to make sure they were good and scared like I was at their age. <laughs> um, and they always enjoyed the, the tale. Yeah. And again, even with my own children, I retold the story to them. And I've overheard them telling these stories to their friends mm -hmm. about the campgrounds and how there is a goat man lurking around ready to have you for dinner <laughs> so why did you and this might be hard to articulate i don't know because even for me to think about it uh i'd really have to sort of dissect it but why did you feel like you wanted to tell the story it's a good story it's a good narrative hmm. and we all like to have those stories that scare us um it's like going on a roller coaster mm. you don't think you'd be fun but it is fun it's fun to be scared it's fun to feel that little chill uh, up your spine i believe that the goat man is going to be a living legend for a long time for every generation ever since it was told to me and who knows who told my my brother yeah in the early 2000s i was working as a camp counselor at hills of peace and I'd ask the director, Kirk Boot, if I could tell the Goatman story at Campfire. I think most directors would have said no, but to my surprise, he said yes. Later, he revealed to me that he had a hand to play in bringing the story to Hills of Peace. Here's Kirk. So my name is Kirk Boot, and I live in Calgary, Alberta. Uh, and I actually brought Goatman to Hills of Peace, and it has been passed on by several people, including Matt, to other campers um, and it stayed with campers in their lives and when they look back on camp experiences they remember the story of Goatman. Tell me about your experience with Goatman. Where does it begin? So uh, Goatman is a folklore story that I actually heard when I was very young so I was perhaps 14 years of age or it would have been in late 60s early 70s. And it was told to me near um, 
Exshaw, Alberta, uh, and it was called uh, Camp Hector. Uh, I have a feeling it may have been at a campfire, but at that time, um, all the youth lived in teepees. And so uh, it might have been a bedtime story, <laughs> you know. Uh, but either way, uh, the, the setting of the mountains was key and integral to the story. The, the Goldman story actually fits quite well with the setting. You have the mountains in the background and, and you uh, have the wind coming through the trees. So it, it, it makes the story come alive as, you, as the person that's telling it is telling it. The story I remember is uh, the, this is a, uh, the main character uh, is raised in a community of lumberjacks. And um, he wants to escape this community of lumberjacks. His parents are lumberjacks, his brothers and sisters, his aunt and uncles. And so his desire is to actually educate himself. He wants to become a doctor. And so he leaves home to, to, uh, to a prestigious university. But every semester, uh, at the end of the semester, he has to return to, to the community to earn a living to pay for his university. And so he ends up at the lumberjack camps, um, making his living to pay for his education. And because he's well familiar and well respected inside the community, he's given certain roles and responsibilities. One of the roles being that he would be charged with closing the camp at the end of the season. And in, in this particular setting, uh, the story goes that an early winter hits the camp. And so his job is to get everybody out of the camp, and he's the last one in the camp. And, of course, the, the journey turns bad because he ends up falling off the mountain and breaks his leg. And so he has to learn uh, to survive based on his own uh, intuition and knowledge that he has acquired through university. And one of that, one of that uh, pieces of, of information that, or knowledge that he has is to kill a goat. <laughs> and he uses the goat to, to uh, actually saw off his own leg. Sounds grotesque. That's how the story went. And he reattaches his, the goat leg as essentially um, his other leg so that he can become mobile again. And over several weeks, uh, the story goes that because it's, uh, uh, it's an animal, um, he has to deal with other issues of his own um, humanity. So he, he ends up becoming more wild and more animalistic than what his, um, his true self is. And so the, the story is that uh, he ends up becoming uh, even more grotesque and he gets back to the camp. Some people come back to find him and they discover what's happened to him. And he goes through a rampage where he ends up uh, becoming wild and, and uncontrollable. Uh, and essentially um, the story of Goldman is that you have to fear him now, not only because he looks grotesque, but he is becoming animalistic. Uh, so that is the structure of the story. And of course, as you tell the story to, to other people, 
they tend to add to the story. They tend to either make him more grotesque or more animalistic, or they tend to bring them into him into the setting that they're telling the story about. Um, I'm curious to hear about uh, you know you bringing the story to Hills of Peace. Um, do you do you remember uh, doing that intentionally? Do you remember? you know, telling the story at Hills of Peace for what was potentially the first time. Um, tell me about that. <laughs> well, you know, I think when I told the story, it was all about the sensational. <laughs> it was to give uh, the kids a bit of a scare. And for the most part, I think I was successful. But <laughs> when I hear my my own two kids, uh, uh, well, actually all three of them, but uh, all wanting to to tell or retell the Goldman story, um, I laugh because I would never ever in my wildest dreams have thought that telling that story at Hills of Peace would have had such a, an impact on their lives. Uh, and and I think the reason why they remember it so well is because of who told it. And it wasn't me, it was, it was you, Matt. And they remember the story, but they remember you. <laughs> and when they when they hear about the story, they remember you telling it, and they remember how you told it. Uh, so, uh, kudos to to you that uh, that inspired them to uh, to want to relive that memory. Yeah, I'm glad your kids remember that. And I know that for me, I thought it was such a, a fun element of my feelings about Hills of Peace. Like I say, I'm I'm, I'm glad to hear that your kids remember that fondly. <laughs> it's it's cool well, to hear that. You know, your your life is um, first built on dreams, and as you as you live your life, uh, your dreams become your the reason for moving forward. And stories like that that build the imagination, that build a sense of uh, wonder and awe, creates that uh, that motion within yourself to want to have. To want to see more, understand more. It's the playground of life. You know, we we come into the playground of life. We climb the monkey bars. We fall off. We um, have to get up and scrape off our knees. Um, but if we don't reclimb and the monkey bar again, um, you know, we lose out. Um, you you have to have those dreams. You have to have those that motivation that gets you up in the morning to go to work or to go and be of service to uh, to the community or to do whatever it is that you set your dreams out to be, whether it's an Olympian or it's a, a mayor of a city or a prime minister or a president, you know, you, you have to have those dreams. After hearing that Goatman had come from another camp, Camp Chief Hector, I felt like I had uncovered some new trail in a familiar forest. I contacted staff at Camp Chief Hector and they confirmed that, yes, Goatman did indeed haunt their grounds. One former staff member even recalls hearing the story as far back as 1952. Not long after I'd spoken with him, and quite serendipitously, I managed to find a former camper from Camp Chief Hector. My name is Shana Humble. I'm originally from Treaty 7 in Métis Territory. I grew up in Calgary, Alberta. I'm currently living in Ottawa, Ontario in uh, unceded Algonquin Territory. Um, do you want me to talk about Goatman or how I heard about Goatman or is that enough for an introduction. <laughs> that was a fantastic introduction, so thank you for that. I did a little presentation about Goatman um, at a uh, student symposium at the University of Alberta in 2013, and um, I had not really ever met anybody who knew about Goatman other than 
my fellow campers from Hills of Peace camp in Alberta, which I attended as a youth. And then when I presented, um, you know, the story and kind of talked a little bit about my research into the folklore, uh, you came up to me after and you told me some of your experiences. So do you remember, do you remember that? I do, actually. I remember it quite clearly because that was actually my first conference that I had ever been to. So I remember that day quite clearly. <laughs> I think my initial reaction was surprise uh, because I hadn't met a lot of people who knew who Goatman was, who knew the story behind Goatman, and who also were interested in talking about Goatman. So a little bit of surprise, excitement to meet somebody else who had heard the story. Yeah, it kind of feels a little bit like an exclusive club. And when you when you find someone else who belongs to it, it's 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 exciting. <laughs> I know that's my reaction. That's how I felt when you came up to me. So tell me about Goatman. How, you know, what is the story as you know it? When did you hear it? Um, you know, start anywhere that makes sense for you. Sure. So I was a camper at Camp Chief Hector. Um, and Mount Yamneska is in Stony Nakoda territory. It's right across from the camp itself. And I think that's the place that I heard it first. Um, I remember it being told as though he was from uh, behind Mount Yamneska. I believe there's a former logging camp there. And the story as I remember it is that there was a logger. It was the end of the season and he had gone out by himself. He was just going to cut down a few more trees, etc. And one of the bigger trees fell across one of his legs and he was stuck there for several days. He called out, but because he had gone out alone and it was the end of the season, nobody could hear him. So he waited several days and eventually a mountain goat came by where he was stuck and he used the knife that he had in his pocket. Uh, he, this is rather gruesome, uh, fair warning, uh, but he, he took off his own leg and then he uh, also um, killed the goat and used one of the goat's legs uh, to serve as his own. Um, and then he continued to live around that area. Um, how the exact you know, event happened, I'm not sure. But I always remember him roaming in that general area, but also that he would uh, take children from tents, that kind of thing. Um, so it was a little bit scary when you were small. Campers stay in teepees. Um, so it probably would have been told around the campfire there. I also distinctly remember hearing the story on out trips. So when we would actually leave the main site, so we would be backcountry camping, uh, whether we were backpacking or canoeing. Um, so it, it was generally when we were away from the other groups, right? You know, the time when you tell ghost stories, urban legends, that kind of thing. So I, I remember distinctly hearing it being away from the camp, but also in that general area still. The Alberta Goatman story appears to stretch back at least 60 years being then brought to Hills of Peace from Camp Chief Hector in the early 1970s. When and how the Goatman was introduced to Camp Chief Hector remains unanswered. You know, when I heard the story at Hills of Peace camp, for me, the fact that the story happened there made it so much more visceral, and it also had an impact on my sense of place and, and what I thought about that place. And I'm wondering if you had any similar sort of thoughts or impressions about Camp Chief Hector. It was definitely about being there and whether it was told in the distant or the more recent past. I recall that the, the story always finished that, you know, he's still there. He's still out there, you know, lurking around the logging camp or lurking just over that hill. Um, so it was a very contemporary 
thing in my head, or I think that was also adding to the fear, right? If you're trying to scare a group of young kids, it, it's still happening. He's still there, right? As you go to bed in your tent, et cetera. When, when you first offered to do uh, this podcast, I started asking friends out here. Um, I'm in Ontario now. Um, you know, had they heard the story of Goatman, including friends who also went to summer camps, et cetera, they all looked at me like I was crazy. What are you talking about? We've never heard of this. But I've asked, you know, a few other people in Alberta, um, not who necessarily went to camp and multiple people, not everyone, but multiple people had heard about Goatman. A simple Google search and one is immediately confronted with a number of modern Goatman type characters. The Goatman of Texas, the Billy Whack Ram Man of Ventura, California, the Bunny Man of Virginia, the Lake Worth Monster of California, and the Florida Skunk Ape. The Maryland Goatman, however, is perhaps the most cited of all of these as being well-known, well-told, and well-feared. Although they share a homicidal tendency, a propensity toward axe-wielding, and a generally menacing demeanor, the Maryland Goatman differs from the Hills of Peace Goatman in a number of ways. I've not come across a single account regarding the Maryland Goatman that includes anything about a logging accident, a severed leg, or a goat leg for that matter. You know, I, I do agree with you that to me, what is really great about the, this Goatman story is that it does, it does seem to be an Albertan thing. That was my experience too, because I talked to folks out here and they had no idea what I was talking about. Yeah. <laughs> so that for me was part of my excitement is because growing up, I really thought that this story began and ended with Hills of Peace. I, I, I had, you know, told friends about it back home um, after camp and not a single person had ever heard of Goatman. Everybody had the same sort of reaction to it. That, that's to me what was always kind of interesting is, about it too, is that when you're at camp hearing the story, it feels so impactful and important and, uh, and visceral in that way. But then when you try to tell the story outside of the camping context, that all kind of drops off. And, and people react to it as being really silly. And that's been my experience anyway. People, people just aren't really interested in it outside of that camping context. But when you, when you tell it at camp, all of a sudden the story, um, it carries with it this weight or this gravity that it otherwise doesn't have. Yeah, for sure. I was uh, talking to some friends and I, I I told them the same story that, that I told you. And they were so fixated on how did he sew the goat's leg onto his own leg, which obviously, you know, isn't <laughs> possible. But it, it just became, you know, the whole story fell apart, right? Um, if he's not able to to do that. so They're applying a, a rationale to it or trying to apply a rationale to it that I think for the most part when you're telling it at camp, you know, people just sort of, um, well, it's the suspension of disbelief, right? They don't, they don't need you to actually explain why that's possible. When I'm away from the camp, it's, it's not a story that you think about or retell these stories. Uh, it's only when I actually come to camp that the story of Goatman becomes almost important, like a, a living legend that needs to be discussed, that needs to be told from one generation to to the next or otherwise like if I, if I wasn't at camp or even just camping on our own I, it's not a story that I would tell mm -hmm. because for some reason Goatman lives here and only here in this place you know over time when you tend to look back on 
a, a memory, either of yourself as telling the story as, or as you start hearing it back being retold by others, you, you tend to ask yourself questions as to why does it resonate? Why do people gravitate to stories like these? And I, I think that um, is both an element of what the story is and what the story means, but it also is it's the relationships and this overall experience of what camp stories should be about. So there are two aspects to camp stories. One deals with wonder and awe, um, but the other side of camp stories deals with the sensational. It deals with stories that heighten the senses. So um, stories that uh, create a lot of laughter, a lot of adventure, or scary in nature, ghost stories in nature are elevated by, because of the environment themselves. So it's environment where you got trees, you got wind, you got the, the campfire setting, you've got a lake, um, but you're also in a closed setting where you, you're around people that uh, you've come to know over the, the period of maybe a week and it, it transcends time. And over time, as you reconnect with people, you remember the stories. So they have a very important aspect to our life in general because um, we connect with one another because of the stories and because of this sense of wonder and awe or this sense of sensationalism. It makes life uh, more alive, I, I guess is perhaps the right way to say it. When I think about it, I definitely think about my childhood. I think about, you know, positive memories of camping. Um, I think about positive memories of being at camp and just more more the situation around it as opposed to the story itself. But for some reason, it's a story that sticks out in my mind because I'm somebody who really enjoys ghost stories. I always have. And I've heard a lot. And some of them stick out more than others. But for some reason, this story has stuck out. And I'm not quite sure if it's because, you know, I first heard it from my dad. And then I heard it at camp. So it kind of, you know, tied two things together that I love um, or, or what brought them together. But I, I look back at the, at the story um, as a positive memory of my childhood or as something that I enjoyed just because of the events around it as opposed to the story itself necessarily. But yet I remember it quite clearly, clearer than any of the other stories that I heard at camp. Exactly. The, the grand irony is, just like you say, is as grotesque and spooky as the story is, when I think of that story, I have such a positive fondness that sort of creeps up in me that uh, it, to me, it kind of it shows you what a really good ghost story can do, is it, it makes you feel good. It, it brings up actually happy memories because you're thinking about the context. You're thinking about where you heard it, how you heard it, who told it to you, rather than the details itself. So in that sense, it, it almost becomes this device of um, memory or reminiscence. You know, it's kind of this uh, ability to time travel back to a time where your, your nostalgia kind of stems from. It's it's those kinds of stories that resonate with the kids, and of course they um, they find find it fun, and they find it uh, you know a, a story that they'll always remember because of the experience themselves. And they remember the stories because they remember each other, and and they hold on to the to that relationship, that friendship, throughout a whole lifetime um, because of the experience. You do these things because it creates a sense of community, and community is everything in a camp. 
I remember asking you if, you know, we could tell the Go Man story at Campfire. And I myself had never actually heard the Go Man story be told at a formal campfire before. Um, you know, we'd always heard it sort of like after campfire or during the day, you know, off the trail, um, never really told in like a formal setting. And, um, and I, you know, I vaguely remember proposing to you that we, you know, that, that maybe I could tell the story at campfire um, at the time, not knowing that you were the one who actually brought Goatman to Hills of Peace in the first place. So <laughs> I think it's kind of neat that, you know, that that was the case. And, and maybe that was part of the reason why you allowed me to do it. Uh, maybe you had a, you know, a fondness for it. But, but you know, in, in looking back on that, I can better appreciate now that um, part of the reason I'm sure why you allowed me to do that is, is exactly why you're saying, although, you know, this is a spooky story. And I think maybe some counselors or some directors might be hesitant to have that kind of uh, content be presented to kids, you know, in a formal setting or or at all. Um, I agree with you that what you're doing is you're actually building a sense of community. You're building memories, and clearly, uh, it has had that effect because um, I mean, Go Man is still told at Hills of Peace. Uh, you know, you told me before the interview that you know your kids still remember it very well and and sort of have taken it into their own sense of memory and and sense of place and um, and you know potentially remember it from when I told it to them. And so it, it is you know it is more than just a story. and uh, and again, I, I agree with you that it, the the sensational, larger than life shock and awe elements of the story, are sort of acting as a punctuation mark. It it is a it is creating a rooted anchor in space and time, uh, so that people you know they'll remember back to when they experienced the shock and awe of the story. They may not remember the particulars of the story itself, um, but they'll remember you know who they were with, um, where they were, maybe what they were feeling at the time. And suddenly you're, you're cementing that memory. You're building a frame around it. You're allowing it to be something that people can take with them. And to me, that's, you know, one of the strongest appeals of, uh, you know, the classic campfire ghost story is that it's able to do that. Perhaps the Goatman tale acts as an identifier, a legitimizer. Because Hills of Peace has its own monster, it is a real place. It is a real community. We have folklore, and therefore we are a folk. According to Alan Dundies, the famous folklorist, the point is that it is in the folklore that folk groups are defined. Maybe the Goman acts as a sort of freakish flag, a macabre mascot. The character connects generations of people to each other, and all to a space that becomes a place through the stories that are told there. Perhaps everyone just wants their own monster, their own ghost story to tell. Scaring one another with a story that belongs to us is, ironically, truly an act of affection. Quite simply, we become fond of our ghosts, no matter how much they frighten us, and we tell stories about our ghosts to those we are fond of. For the most part, in my experience, Goatman's presence at Hills of Peace is not malicious. While the tale is terrifying, telling it is no act of terror. Goatman is celebrated and sensationalized in all his brutal glory by the young campers and trickster counselors who tell his story to their captive audiences. He inspires fear, yes, 
but it is a merry sort of fear. And when you hear the story, you know where you are and who you are with. Wherever you are, as far as you're concerned, if you're hearing Goatman, you must be in your neck of the woods. Thank you again to Aunt Angie, Kirk, and Shana. Intangible Alberta is a production of the Royal Alberta Museum in partnership with the Strathcona County Museum and Archives. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss our next episode. You are now leaving Intangible Alberta. He slowly makes himself past through the gate and into the camp, dragging the axe. And he starts to breathe heavy with a strange sound starting to emanate from his voice. (laughs) There, he comes to the first cabin. He reaches out. And he notices that his hands are no longer his human hands, but have grown claws. And hair has covered his arms and legs, not just human hair, but the hairs of an animal. And he is quite surprised at this, and yet content with it. He opens up the door, and there lies sleeping are several lumberjacks after a hard day's work. Walking across the floor, you can hear his hooves. And he stands over the first lumberjack, raising his axe in the sky. He looks down at his friend that once was his friend, but now it is his dinner. And he starts to chop up his friend and then starts to eat these delicious morsels of lumberjack but he realizes that there's something missing so he walks over to the cupboard and he opens it up and there he sees Canadian made syrup and he pours it all over the other lumberjacks and starts to consume them as well he is satiated for now but he thinks to himself he will return when the next shift starts and feast again. Right on. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> that's my version. <laughs> I like I like it. <laughs> yeah, no, I like that version. I like the I like the maple syrup. <laughs> it has, makes it very Canadian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>